Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1263. Interview number two with Jim Diagenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on September 30th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my great privilege and my pleasure to present once again to our audience Jim Diagenio. We visited with Jim for 25 hours back in 2018 and 2019. And in the interim, Jim has written the screenplay for Oliver Stone's new documentary, JFK Revisited. In addition to the screenplay for not only that documentary, but also a four-hour expanded version called JFK Destiny Betrayed, uh, Jim has authored a book featuring transcripts of both the two-hour and four-hour interview plus supplemental interviews that is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. So once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to present Jim Diagenia. Jim, welcome back once again to our airways. Thank you so much, Dave. And by the way, I will offer a uh, an apology to the listening audience if the sound quality of my voice is subpar. This is a Zoom meeting, and so we'll see if we can't uh, correct this uh, going forward. Now, in our last interview, we were talking about how LBJ used the threat of a nuclear war, the fear that if uh, the killing of JFK could be pinned on either Castro and or the Soviet Union, this would lead to a nuclear war. We'll come back to uh, Kennedy's policies vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Uh, there is another thing, Jim, that I thought might be worth talking about as we are speaking on September 30th of 2022. A lot of national attention has been focused on the inquiries into the January 6th insurrection. And that has struck me in a number of ways. Uh, one, and, and I want you to comment on this. I find it ironic that there is so much discussion of this was an attack on American democracy. This threatened the integrity of our democracy. It was an assault on democracy, except that Senator Joe Biden said that our democracy is under fire, unquote. Uh, I would submit that our democracy was quite literally under fire uh, almost 60 years ago in Dealey Plaza and that what people are wiping their brow in the reef uh, over, namely the P, our democracy didn't get overthrown on January 6th, actually happened almost 60 years ago. What are your thoughts in that regard? Isn't that, um, you know, very few people have noted that there was any connection at all or any comparison. Well, what happened back in 1963 was an overthrow of American democracy. I don't think anybody who studies that case or watches our film, you know, can, can really argue that point. What happened afterwards, after Kennedy was killed, uh, 
the war, if, if you just compare the one report with what we have in our film, it's, it's completely night and day. Okay. I mean, the Warren Commission was, you know, I don't mind saying this. I, the Warren Commission was worse than a cover up. It was a fiasco. You know, it was almost a, uh, you know, a black comedy of what should have occurred. Okay. And what didn't occur, you know, uh, in fact, there was really, if you read the Warren report today, in light of what you see in our film, you know, um, I don't see how you can keep a straight face. The in in every single aspect of of uh, what they call a murder investigation, you know, the the Warren Commission fell flat on its face. Okay, and therefore, what that allowed to happen was a complete reversal of American foreign policy, which is the other thing that we prove in our film. We And our, our film is divided into two parts. I think anybody who watches either version can understand that. There is a forensic investigation on the one hand, and there is a foreign policy investigation on the other, because we believe, me and Oliver and Rob believed, that the cover-up about who Kennedy was Okay, and what he was doing is even worse than the cover up about the circumstances of his, you know, assassination. All right. The difference between the two instances, the January 6th thing, okay, and November 22nd is that the assault on the Capitol was more or less done out in the open. It was not a covert operation. All right. Uh, the assassination of President Kennedy was a covert operation in which I believe the conspiracy to kill Kennedy was planned out with the ensuing cover up that was to follow afterwards in order to conceal. And, and this, I don't have to tell you this. This is the way that covert operations are planned. Okay, they they build a cover up, okay, or a cover story into the actual black op itself. And that's what occurred here. All right. So, you know, good and well to those people who are uh trying to find out um uh all the aspects of January sixth, but I really wish they would turn their attention uh, to November 22nd, 1963, cause that's when a real coup d'etat actually, actually did take place. Let me add one more point. I wrote an article about this for Consortium News, Joe Loria, the late Bob Perry's website. Joe Loria runs it today in which I said there is a definite, um, parallel between the two and that was the role of the secret service okay because as we know or i think we know is that the uh trump wanted to go to the capitol that day and the secret service didn't want to take him there all right in the jfk case it's a little bit different the role of the secret service because anybody who studies a jfk case uh will understand 
that the Secret Service did a rather poor job, <laughs> that's an understatement, you know, protecting Kennedy that day. And in fact, if they would have done a good job, it might have not have happened the way it turned out. All right. And so, you know, it's it, like, for example, the uh, I think everybody's seen the film on YouTube where the Secret Service agent on the rear bumper uh, is ordered to come off the rear bumper. And he does understand why he has to do that. He's shrugging his shoulders in, with a puzzled look on his face. OK, the number of motorcycles on each side of President Kennedy, which were planned, was cut back. Okay, and that's why you have this rather odd formation to and front, to and back with the side angle just about wide open. We also know that the uh, there were several Secret Service agents that were out getting bombed uh, the night before at a place called The Cellar, which was an after-hours bar, okay, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I think they were out to like 3 o'clock you know, in the morning. So there was these very odd things that happened, okay, which uh, made Kennedy susceptible to this triangulation of gunfire. The uh, the behavior of the Secret Service has, uh, as you mentioned, <clears throat> has come into uh, focus in connection with the... <clears throat> Uh, January 6th incident, there were some communications that apparently were deep six, uh, along with some of the technology that the Secret Service was using. And this is now a focal point uh, and a cause of angst for some of the investigators. Uh, we'll take a longer and more in-depth examination of the Secret Service because there was a whole lot that was going on, not just with regard to November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas, but in connection with a number of other attempts, uh, apparent attempts on JFK's life in Chicago, in Tampa, Florida, and uh, some other places. We'll talk about that and uh, uh, Abraham Bolden and uh, also Elmer Moore, am I remembering that gentleman's first name correctly? No, Elmer Moore is a very, very important part of that film, and a very important part of the cover-up. He was Secret Service, though, right? Yes. Yeah, and we're going to talk about him, and uh, is it Jim Goschenauer? Jim Goschenauer, who was a witness for the church committee. And and, uh, he had some very... Interesting things to say about uh, Elmer yes. and his behavior. We'll get into that when we get into the Secret Service. But it, it's so interesting that uh, there, I've forgotten the name of the congressman in question, but he said basically either the Secret Service comes up with those now missing communications, quote, or else, unquote. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say them or else. What? Right. It, it, uh, they've... There has been a whole lot of uh, questionable behavior in the past. Uh, another interesting thing, Jim, an echo between Donald Trump and his administration and the events surrounding JFK's assassination, and that is Jefferson Morley 
his suit, his Freedom of Information Act suit about George Bill and Ladies, and uh, someone who was, shall we say, uh, a less than vigorous uh, appellate representative in regard to Jefferson Morley's suit. Uh, if you would tell us briefly who George Joannides was, we'll come back to him at greater length later in these interviews. Uh, what Jefferson, uh, Jefferson Morley and who it was that uh, basically put the whammy on uh, Morley's suit. Um, one of our interviews in the film is with journalist Jefferson Morley. Jefferson Morley, um, was very curious to discover, um, who was running the DRE organization down in New Orleans, the directory student, uh, excuse me, the revolutionary directorate of student hall. Okay. Which had more than one branch had several branches throughout the Southeast was a Cuban exile movement. They did some funny things in the summer and fall of 1963. For example, they got in communication with Lee Harvey Oswald. All right. They then, one of the leaders, Carlos Brangare got in the fisticuffs with Oswald on one of the main streets in New Orleans. And then they went to court over this and Oswald spent at least one night in detention. Okay. And then uh, within 24 hours after the assassination, Carlos Bringier puts out a broadsheet saying that Oswald killed Kennedy for Castro. So Jeff Morley was very curious about how the heck all of this stuff happened. You know, let, let me briefly uh, interject that the DRE, the Revolutionario Estudiantil, was part of the CIA's anti-Castro. Yes. And yes. Oswald was officially working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which is a pro-Castro group. Uh, he was the only member of its New Orleans chapter. Right. Uh, the audience has heard the interview on WDSU, um, a conversation caught off with Ed Butler, Lee Harvey Oswald, Ed Stuckey, uh, uh, his name was Stuckey, and, uh, Carlos Bringier as well. And so that, and, and I remember Bringier asks Oswald, uh, about a speech that Castro made in which he characterized JFK as a ruffian and a thief. We'll talk more about Kennedy's policy vis-a-vis Cuba. Uh, and, and then, uh, Bringier asks him, do you agree with Mr. Castro? Basically, mm-hmm. uh, sending, sending Lee Harvey Oswald up and this in advance. So, uh, uh, yeah, BRE, Carlos Bringier, a voice the audience has heard. And, uh, this curious altercation in New Orleans. And again, uh, George Philonides, Jefferson Morley, the Freedom of Information Act suit, and the curious behavior of a jurist in connection with that, or a, a judge. Right. What, what what happened is that Morley then decided to try and find out the specifics of who was really running the DRE for the Central Intelligence Agency. And he found out that it was... George Joannidis. All right. Now, what makes that so odd 
even odder than you would think, is that the House Select Committee on Assassinations, when they were conducting their inquiry in the 70s, uh, they had a deal with the CIA that no one who was involved in any way with the JFK case would serve as a liaison between their committee and the agency. Well, it turned out that Joannese was one of the major liaisons between the CIA and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the CIA lied to the committee about this. And in fact, if you listen to Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel at that time, he said it was actually Joannides who denied that he had any connection with the JFK case, when in fact, he was Richard Helms's point man as the major go-between between the CIA and the DRE. And he was passing out, according to Jeff Morley, around $50,000 a month to that group. And in fact, the CIA paid for that broadsheet, which had this glaring headline of Oswald and Castro killed Kennedy with pictures of both of them on the front page. So George Joannidis was the last guy in the world that you wanted working with your committee, you know, who was trying to solve the JFK assassination. And in fact, two of the people who worked on the committee, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway, and they worked on the CIA aspects, they said that once Joannidis came in, the CIA started obstructing their inquiry. Now, to get to the further point, when Jeff Morley wanted all the documents out of the CIA about Joannidis, which I believe there were 300 pages, he used Jim Lazar, a very experienced Freedom of Information Act lawyer, on his case. This case went on for something like 10 years. It would, he would, Jeff would win. The CIA would appeal. The CIA would win on appeal. It get kicked back to the district court. He would win. The CIA would appeal, et cetera. And this went on for about a decade. The guy who actually ended up finally losing Jefferson Morley's case for him was none other than Brett Kavanaugh. And we, I don't think that's in the film, but it's in the book. We got Jeff to talk about that. All right. It was Brett Kavanaugh who finally cast a deciding vote against him. And then I believe within 24 to 48 hours, Trump submits his name to Congress for the Supreme Court. Now, does anybody in their right mind believe that realizing he was going to be nominated for the Supreme Court, that he was going to go against the CIA in such a case of extreme importance? I don't think so. 
the, fi- the, the, the fix was in. The point being that there is yet another element of resonance between the operations of Team Trump, so to speak, and uh, the events of 11-22-63. Uh, Jim, as we are speaking at the end of September of 2022, I am not alone in my fears that uh, the war in Ukraine, and we've spoken about the links between that milieu and the milieu of the JFK assassination, the ABN, and so forth, but there, I am not the only one who is afraid that this will lead to a nuclear war. Going back to JFK, going back to the meme which keeps appearing that, uh, you know, Oswald was working for the KGB and the commies did it, Castro did it, etc. Uh, JFK's policies with regard to the Cold War are anything, well, let's just say they're not something that would have provoked a Soviet assassination attempt on the president, even if the Soviets were insane enough to try something like that. Let's take a look at the JFK's policies with regard to the Soviet Union. And something that you note, something that is noted in the film, is a 1961 meeting, very early in JFK's uh, administration, between JFK and the Joint Chiefs, when they presented him with a scenario for a first strike, a, an initiation of nuclear war on the Soviet Union. Right. And we have Jimmy Galbraith, uh, who wrote an article about this, speaking about it, both in the book and and, and in the film. And the long version. And so what this was, was that certain people in the, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA, I believe Lyman Lemnitzer was at the meeting and I believe Alan Dulles was at the meeting. All right. They predicted that the point at which they would have an overwhelming advantage. Okay. And one that would be devastating to the point that the Russians could not launch a retaliatory attack was in the fall of 1963. All right. And they actually wanted Kennedy uh, to go ahead and agree with them. And therefore, of course, ultimately approve this. Well, according to one of the people who were there, actually more than one, Walt Rostow and Dean Rusk, Rusk wasn't actually there, but he was out in the hallway, okay? When Kennedy heard this, okay, he was more or less kind of astounded. He asked one or two questions. He got up. He left the meeting. He met Dean Rusk as Secretary of State in the hallway, and he said words of the effect, and we call ourselves the human race. All right. So these are the kind of disagreements over fundamental Cold War policy that Kennedy had with the Pentagon and the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, there are so many areas in which uh, JFK and the uh, National Security Establishment ran 
a foul to one another with regard to Cold War policy. And we'll, we'll talk about the, the developing world and a very insightful comment, I think, by Lisa Peace, but that, that later on. Um, the, 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 uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what JFK did and what the Joint Chiefs wanted, uh, wanted, wanted him to do. Okay, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred in October of 1962. For whatever reason, and nobody can really say this for sure, people just have suspicions. Khrushchev decided to go ahead and ship a rather large nuclear arsenal into Cuba. And when I say large, I mean large. There were over 100 intermediate and long-range missiles that were sent into Cuba along with nuclear bombers and also atomic submarines. So you had all three branches, you know, of the nuclear armaments that were represented by air, by submarine, and by land, right? Well, Kennedy finds out about this, all right, in early October of 1962, and he calls a meeting of what's called the XCOM, the Executive Committee. And because he felt so ill-advised previously during the Bay of Pigs about that doomed operation, he insisted that his brother Robert be there along with his chief advisor, Ted Sorensen. At the beginning, and I've read the transcript more than once, almost everybody wants to either have either what is called a surgical airstrike or an invasion or a combination of the two. Someone, I believe it was McNamara, suggested a blockade, all right? And Kennedy preferred that option. Okay, we're going to go ahead and blockade the island so that the Russians cannot get anything more into Cuba. Now, if you want to really read something bizarre, Kennedy had one meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The crisis lasted about two weeks. He had one meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Wow. I mean, when they heard that he had was leaning towards the blockade idea, okay, uh, General Curtis LeMay of the Air Force literally said to him, and I'm, this is not verbatim, but it's pretty close. This blockade thing is not going to work. It's, it's going to encourage the Soviets. It's going to be sort of like, um, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain at Munich. Okay. And Kennedy couldn't believe what, what this guy was saying. All right, you're really in the muck, he said, words to the effect. And Kennedy said, well, you know, you're down there with me. All right. And they, the way they talk about him after he leaves, because evidently they didn't know that Kennedy was tape recording the meeting. 
you know, uh, they were essentially mocking him. Okay. Now, of course, as Kennedy later said, one advantage these military guys have over us is that if we take their advice, there's going to be nobody around to argue with them afterwards. And of course, that's precisely what happened because we later found out that the Soviets had given Castro tactical nuclear weapons, which were to be used if there was any invasion of the island from Florida. Okay. And those tactical nuclear weapons would have literally incinerated any kind of large American force that was going to come up on the beach. All right. And that very likely would have led to Armageddon. All right. All right. And so it turned out that Kennedy was absolutely correct on this. He got a peaceful arrangement in return for Khrushchev withdrawing all the weapons. Kennedy made a pledge not to invade Cuba, number one. And his brother made a secret agreement with um, the Russians that we would withdraw our nuclear missiles, okay, from Turkey, okay? By the way, Kennedy even knows those were there. He thought he had ordered them to be withdrawn already, all right? But he threw that in. And then that essentially ended up being the peaceful resolution to that crisis. But it led to something even more. Castro felt he had been betrayed by Khrushchev because he wasn't in on the final negotiations um, about the withdrawal of the armaments. And so when there was a go-between about the prisoner exchange after the Bay of Pigs, he sent a message through the American representative that he would be interested in setting up a dialogue, a secret dialogue between himself and Kennedy. And Kennedy agreed to it. So through various intermediaries, like Lisa Howard, okay, uh, the ABC newscaster, there was a back-channel dialogue between Castro and Kennedy. All right? And if you follow that, all right, there, and there have been, you know, long essays written about this, you know, they were built around, eventually, the United States establishing relations with Cuba. And remember, this is 1963, all right? And one of the people who was involved said that he had no doubt that if Kennedy had lived, that those would have ended up being successful and the United States would have exchanged ambassadors with Cuba. In other words, it would have been eventual recognition, diplomatic recognition, which, of course, as you know, Dave, has not happened in 59 years. Right. In fact, when Castro heard that JFK had been assassinated, he was actually meeting with a French journalist named Jean Daniel, who was one of those intermediaries. So, uh, but the timing there was, was altogether synchronous. Uh, turning back to, uh, momentarily, 
for to JFK's policy with regard to the Soviet Union, bearing in mind that we continue to hear, you know, that the KGB killed Kennedy or wanted to, blah, 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 blah. Tell us something that might appear amazing to young members of the audience, but it used to be that when nuclear weapons were tested, they were tested in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, this was something that uh, JFK basically put an end to. Uh, tell us about the atmospheric test ban treaty. Yes, this was a treaty, I believe it was in August of 1963 that it was signed between the Soviets and the United States, which banned further testing of atomic weapons uh, above ground. This was something, by the way, that Kennedy was very, very much interested in. I mean, and especially after the missile crisis, right? But he'd always been interested in stopping nuclear proliferation, right? And in fact, if you talk to these negotiators and people in the CIA, they will tell you that no president since Kennedy has ever been as dedicated to that cause. Nobody's even come close, all right? And so Kennedy decided that he and the Russians should negotiate over this. Uh, And there was a very good example, of course, what happened in Cuba in 62. And so Kennedy took that and he ran with it, all right? And after several back and forth discussions, okay, which some of them were done through secret uh, mailings, all right, the premier of Russia, Nikita Khrushchev, and the president of the United States, Sean F. Kennedy, set up a conference, I believe, in Geneva, all right, and they came to a treaty agreement. Now, the third person involved in this was the editor of the Saturday Review magazine. That's not around today, but it was a pretty big magazine back then. A guy named Norman Cousins, who was very, very interested in nonproliferation also. Okay. And he eventually wrote a book about this. All right. Uh, and there's a, a film that includes it called uh, JFK, A President Betrayed where you can see Norman Cousins' family in Khrushchev's uh, Dachau, okay, on, I think in on the Crimean coast, all right? And they were essentially, Norman Cousins was a third wheel, okay, on this agreement, which Kennedy was very interested in. And he made a massive lobbying effort once the deal was signed, to go ahead and get it through Congress. He knew the first thing he'd have to do is get the Republicans to sign on. And so he went to Eisenhower, and he got Eisenhower to go ahead and help him uh, pass the agreement. And once, of course, Eisenhower agreed to it, because at that time in 62, he was still the face of the Republican Party, all right? Then that's what allowed it to seal through. I believe it was a landslide, you know, something like 80 to 13 or something like that, or 80 to 19, okay, that that it went through. And it was a true milestone 
in negotiations between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, something that you focus on in the, in the film, and some, something that has been largely eclipsed by the history that has been allowed to come forward since, that is uh, President Kennedy's address in June of 1963 at American University. Tell us about that. Well, the speech at American University in June of 1963, the amazing thing about this speech is that Kennedy made two historical speeches in the space of 48 hours. One on civil rights, which we show in the film, and one on this rapprochement with the Soviet Union. See, Norman Cousins had told Kennedy that in order for Khrushchev to overcome the extremes, the hawks in the Soviet Union, you have to make a dramatic, a dramatic move that you really mean this. Okay. That, that this treaty is not just going to be a one time thing. All right, that you're really going to try and do something to create some kind of detente between the United States and the USSR. And Kennedy said, all right, I don't have a problem with that. All right. And so then he gave that assignment to Ted Sorensen, one of his, if not the major speechwriter for Kennedy. And Kennedy made this amazing speech which we show a lot of, usually it's only a snippet shown, but we showed a lot of it in the film, all right? And again, I, you know, I, as with the whole thing with Cuba, I can't think of another president who ever made, it's called the peace speech today, okay? Whoever made that kind of dramatic effort to develop you know, some kind of dialogue with the USSR or Russia. I mean, we know what our relationship with uh, the so excuse me, Russia is today. Okay, I mean, it's it's pretty much poisoned. But that at that time, for somebody to make a speech like that, you know, trying to show that there was common ground. Okay, you know, I think he says we we all breathe the same air. We are challenge, we either cherish our children's futures, and we are all mortal. Okay. And then he talks about the ordeal that the Soviet Union went through in World War II. He says that the, the Russia, the German invasion of Russia ate up an area of land, you know, equal to the United States, everything west of Chicago. You know, east of Chicago, I think. No, no, it's west of Chicago. West of Chicago? Towards towards California, yeah, right. Oh, okay, all righty. I stand corrected. All right. Hey, Russia is a huge country. All right. And so, uh, and so these kind of things, if you watch the whole speech or read the transcript, you know, are really, really exceptional. You know, I, I can't think of another president since. You know, whoever did this kind of stuff 
to go ahead and try and establish a kind of relationship with the Soviets. And you have to go back, I believe, to FDR, you know, and his relationship with Stalin, you know, to come, you know, even close to this, what JFK was doing. One of the things that JFK did in that speech was he acknowledged the primary role of the Soviet Union in the defeat of the Nazi forces in World War II, something like 80% of all casualties inflicted on the Third Reich's armies were inflicted by the Soviets. Uh, even Winston Churchill, who hated the Soviet Union, acknowledged that. That was, in that period in time, that was absolute heresy. You just yes. didn't do that. Yes. Because, you know, I don't have to tell you this, Dave, you know, through all of the depictions on television and in movies, okay, the the way that we won World War II was the American invasion of North Africa and then the American invasion of France, a very good example being The Longest Day, you know, that super spectacular film. Um, you know, I hate to say this, but that's pretty much propaganda. The the great German war machine, all right, the combination of uh, the Warmacht and the Luftwaffe, a war machine like nobody had ever seen before, which literally revolutionized the way a land war was fought, okay, through the use of the Blitzkrieg. You know, that... They, that was stopped, you know, on the Russian front, the combination of the defeat at Stalingrad plus the next year, the great tank battle at Kursk. That's what broke the back of the German war machine. All right. You know, and that's what, as you said, upwards of 80% of the German army was involved with Operation Barbarossa, which was the invasion of the Soviet Union. And they took the vast majority of casualties during World War II. So by the end of 1943, you know, the more or less, you know, the, the German war machine was only a shell you know, of what it had been in, you know, 1939, 1940, 1941. Okay. So it's really the Russians. And by the way, I don't mind saying this at all because it's, it's, I can prove it. You know, sorry. Okay. It was really the Russians who defeated the Nazis, you know. It was acknowledged again by, as, as anti-Soviet a figure as Winston Churchill, who, uh, intoned that the Soviets had, quote, ripped the guts, unquote, out of the Wehrmacht. And so that, that, that is a matter of record. You know, I was thinking about the, uh, the U.S. won World War II by invading Normandy and so forth. Uh, Steven Spielberg, the famous Hollywood director, uh, had a film called Saving Private Ryan starring Tom Hanks as an army ranger captain. And, uh, he, in, in one of the supplemental DVDs, uh, Stephen Stewart basically says as much that the U.S. won World War II 
at uh, the Normandy, through the Normandy invasion, uh, Wafer, Tom Hanks, and Spielberg helped to produce A Band of Brothers about the 101st Airborne. Am I correct in remembering that? Because I don't, I don't watch television and I rarely go to the movies. But didn't Tom Hanks, uh, midwife, a, 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 an apologia for the Warren Commission at some point? Oh, yes. He was actually going to do that. All right. Uh, he was actually going, uh, to make a documentary series out of Vincent Bugliosi's doorstop of a book called Reclaiming History, which defended the Warren Commission. I think he actually bought the rights to the book. Uh, Bill Paxton, a former actor who's passed away, he's the one who brought the project to Hanks. All right. Now, I believe that what happened uh, is that because the last big miniseries that Hanks did for HBO, that one was actually based on the war in the Pacific, whereas Band of the Brothers had been based on the war in Europe. But that came in so expensive, and it didn't do very well. I believe that's why HBO would not let him do an extended miniseries on Buglosi's book. That ended up being the movie Parkland, which was one of the biggest bombs. Uh, they ended up making a feature film of it. Okay. Uh, that was a huge bomb. Okay. At, at the box office. I don't even think it made a million dollars, you know, which is really kind of, uh, shocking these days. All right. So yeah, Hanks was going to actually do this. Unbelievable. The saving Corporal Oswald, I guess we could call that. But uh, right. anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm making a do. Uh, back to the uh, Kennedy policy with regard to the Soviet Union. Uh, one of the things you talk about in uh, the documentary, and that is there was an actual proposal by JFK to engage in joint space exploration with the Soviet Union. And now at this point in time, uh, contemporary listeners may think of the uh, space station in which both Russia and the U.S. have collaborated in the past. Maybe that's not that unusual, but proposing joint space exploration with the Soviet Union in 1963, that would have branded Kennedy as a card-carrying red in the uh, Times. And, uh, tell us, about, develop that for us, if you would. Well, ev- ev- everyone knows that, uh, you know, one of the big things that went on during the Kennedy administration, okay, was the NASA project to eventually go ahead and land a guy on the moon. First, there was the Mercury project, which was orbiting the Earth. And then the next thing was Apollo, okay, which was to go ahead and target the moon. Well, when Kennedy was going ahead and trying to establish some kind of detente with the USSR and Khrushchev, one of the things he thought of that he could do as a goodwill gesture, and by the way, it wasn't just a goodwill gesture. Uh, Kennedy was a very budget-conscious guy, all right? He did not, I mean, it's kind of crazy to say this today, but 
he did want to do everything he could to avoid deficit spending. You know, today we live off deficit spending. All right. And so he thought that if he went ahead and made this offer to share the project together, that he could kill two birds with one stone, that he would then go ahead and establish a better relationship with the USSR, and they would share the expenses on this very expensive moon project. But yes, that's absolutely true. Okay, and I don't know how far that it got I think Kennedy was waiting for an acceptance, you know, so we'd go ahead and figure out uh, who was going to do what on the project. Now, of course, <laughs> you know, I don't have to tell you this today. I mean, something like that is kind of unheard of, okay, in the world we live in today where, you know, every, everything is somehow Putin's fault, okay? Everything that, it, that is bad in the world is, is somehow blamed upon the Russians and and Mr. Putin, all right? So Kennedy was really going the last yard between this partial test ban treaty, you know, and this Moon Project cooperation agreement, you know, to try, and of course, what we also mentioned, the peace speech, to really try and forge a new relationship with the Soviets. He absolutely was, and... uh we should remember, too, at this point in time, this is a long time ago, the head of America's space project was Werner von Braun, who has been portrayed as an apolitical technocrat in conventional history. He was actually an SS officer. <laughs> and so he was the, the head of America's space program. But, you know, in, in the context, Jim, of, you know, the KGB killed Kennedy or Operation Dragon, et cetera, with the WACCFL making all the noise about uh, Bondera being killed by uh, the Department 13 and Kostikov and Oswald was connected with them. Uh, the policies that Kennedy was pursuing actually were viewed by the American right wing and the lot of the Joint Peace as proving that Kennedy was the card-carrying red. Uh, the notion that the KGB was even wanted to kill Kennedy is, is ludicrous. And but not one major. We're, we're running low on time, so I don't want to get too far into this. But the, there was a remarkable book called The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Richard Case Miguel maintains that he was actually recruited by the Soviets to kill Oswald in order to prevent the framing of Oswald for an assassination of JFK. Yes, that's. That's true. Uh, Dick Russell's a very experienced author who knows a lot about the Kennedy assassination. In his book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, he writes about how Richard Case Nagel, an intelligence officer, was called down to Mexico City and he was recruited by these KGB officers and the presentation they gave him was this, okay, we understand that there was a plot afoot to kill President Kennedy. If this is true, we think that whoever the domestic plotters are, and that's what it, that's what it is, they are going to use this to blame us for the assassination. 
and raise the tensions, okay, between the two nations. We want you, because you know so much about the American scene, to go ahead and try and find out if this information is accurate. And we want you then to neutralize the plot so it doesn't go forward. All right. And that's, that's really very well detailed in Dick Russell's book, which I believe is close to 500 pages long. All right. And no one, I, I mean, I repeat this, no one was closer to Richard Case Nagel than Dick Russell was. Indeed. And one of the things that you speak about in the film that is discussed is the Kennedy communications Kennedy family communications to the uh, Soviet Union and uh, Premier Khrushchev in the wake of JFK's assassination, uh, confirming who authored the actual killing. That's an astonishing story that I'm really glad we got in the film. Bobby Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy, after about a week, I believe November the 29th, they came to the conclusion that this was a domestic plot by the right wing. All right. They called in a guy named William Walton, who was a a diplomat, a part-time diplomat who was working on cultural affairs with the USSR. They called him into Bobby's house at Hickory Hill, went into the dining room. There was Bobby and Jackie, and they had a letter that they wanted him to carry to the USSR to give it to a friend of Bobby's named Georgie Bolshakov to in turn give it to Khrushchev. In that letter, Bobby Kennedy said that we know that this is a much bigger plot than Lee Harvey Oswald. We believe it was done by our domestic enemies. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Lyndon Johnson is much too close to big business. He will not be able to continue the relationship that my brother and yourself were trying to forge over a rapprochement between the two nations. I will resign. I will run for office. And then I will run for presidency myself. And at that time, we will be able to go ahead and continue those negotiations. Is that the most amazing story you ever heard? (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it is, and it stands in very, very high relief to the, you know, Operation Dragon, you know, the Tim Weimer, uh, piece of Rolling Stone, and mm-hmm. the entire, you know, the KGB, Soviets, Cubans killed JFK. Uh, something, uh, that was, we're getting low on time here, Jim. Uh, one of the things that I have discussed at length with my audience is the fact that one of the major tragedies of our time is the fact that during the Second World War, when the uh, Western Allies retreated from a position that colonial territories that had been conquered by the Axis would eventually be given their independence from their colonial masters, uh, the net effect of that was to cast the anti-colonial movement and the drive for freedom by peoples in colonial territories into the lethal meat grinder 
of the Cold War, and uh, millions of people were killed as a result of that. And a, a thing that I would like to punctuate this interview with, and by way of uh, giving some transition to our next interview, on page 352 of JFK Revisited, there is a very telling and important uh, contribution by Lisa Peace, last name P-E-A-S-E, and she is talking about President Sukarno of Indonesia, and uh, she is quoted here, in an oral history interview that Sukarno gave after John F. Kennedy's death, he said words to the effect that what made Kennedy special is that he believed non-alignment was not amoral as it had been under John Foster Dulles. Uh, that is a profound uh, statement. I think it's accurate. And I think it really serves as a bridge to discussion of JFK's policies with regard to what we now call the developing world, not just Indonesia, but uh, Laos, Vietnam, the Congo, uh, and Cuba, of course. And those policies in combination with JFK's policies for the Soviet Union basically cast him as an outright commie to the people who were allied with not only former Secretary of State John Foster Douglas, but his Sullivan and Cromwell partner uh, and brother who headed up the CIA, Alan Douglas, as a key member of the Warren Commission, they were of the view that the non-aligned nations were commies. And JFK, his view uh, contrasted with that, and he understood the difference between those who sought to cast off the yoke of colonialism and people who were operating from a doctrinaire communist uh, point of view. And that, I think, is one of the most important dynamics, not only in JFK's uh, administration, but you illustrate that uh, in the film, uh, I think, in, in the, a very uh, expert fashion. We'll take this up in, a future inter- in, in future interviews, Jim, but once again, would you tell the audience, because we're almost out of time, uh, about KennedysandKing.com, uh, Black Ops Radio, and about the DVDs and JFK Revisited. Just punch in kennedysandking.com and you'll get to the website that I'm the editor of, all four assassinations of the 60s. I'm also a regular guest on Black Op Radio, which you can also find online. Both versions of the film and a DVD commentary, you can get that at various online vendors like Amazon, okay? And the book is called JFK Revisited through the looking glass and you can get that at various places online like Barnes and Noble, Abbey books, and of course, Amazon. Indeed. And uh, so, and and by the way, I was very pleased to note that the, uh, the DVDs have uh, both the two and four hour interviews in both regular DVD and in Blu-ray. So uh, it's an accommodating package to uh, people who want to uh, use one or the other. So we'll pick up uh, more of JFK's foreign policy 
in our next interviews because we are all out of time here. Uh, this concludes for the record program number 1263. Interview number two with Jim Diagemio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on September 30th of the year 2022. For Jim Diagemio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.